Welcome to Navigating the Next Normal. I'm Mike Gordon, the CEO of Altus Group. I hope that you and your family are doing well and perhaps even finding a way to prosper in these challenging times. A crisis typically speeds up what was going to happen anyway. After the longest CRE expansion anyone can remember, the COVID-19 pandemic has pushed forward multiple disruptions to business as usual that have been coming for years. The crisis is exposing who was ready for change and who wasn't, especially when it comes to leveraging technology strategically. The winners and losers of the next cycle are being determined by how well companies are positioned to adapt today. Brookfield is one of the great companies in our industry, so I'm excited to share today's episode with Kevin Danahy, Global Head of Corporate Development at Brookfield. Scott and Kevin cover a wide range of topics, including opportunities for outsourcing, the untapped potential of technology, and Kevin's career and unique experiences. Kevin brings his lifetime of experience and the Brookfield approach to some of the focal points of discussion in the industry and his perspective on what's happening across the world of real estate. Where are we now and what does the future hold? You are definitely going to like this one. So this is Scott Morey with 111 Advisors, and I'm thrilled today actually to have Kevin Danahy on from Brookfield. Kevin, you and I have known each other not a super long time, but only the last kind of several years. You are currently the EVP and a global head of corporate development for Brookfield, but you wear a lot of different hats there, which we're going to talk about, and and I want to get your thoughts on. So thank you for for participating in this. Um, I want to go back in time a little bit on you know where you grew up and. I know you went to Colgate and later NYU, which we're going to talk about because Colgate, there's a generational thing with your family that I think is pretty interesting. But where did you grow up? Did you grow up in New York or where were you raised? Well, Scott, first, I want to say thank you for having me and, and including Brookfield in your, your podcast series here. So it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I do feel like I've known you much longer than I think we've actually known one another. But uh, we got a lot of common history and, and, uh, and friends or people that we both consider to be friends in common. So um, that makes it a small world. So I, uh, I, I was born in upstate New York, Syracuse. Um, and in, my parents were from upstate. Uh, my dad grew up on a small farm just south of Syracuse, and I, uh, you know, I lived in Syracuse, Albany, and Rochester all the way up through high school, and then um, migrated to Colgate University, about 45 miles south of Syracuse, and then on to New York City, where I've lived since 1983. Yeah, I think you have three siblings, all boys. Were you the oldest of your siblings? I, I am the oldest, still am. Um, <laughs> the other three, all three of them are taller, um, but I have more hair. So we, we go back and forth, uh, you know. <laughs> well, I have three daughters and one son. I, I can't imagine, you know, four sons and the competitiveness that would go on. And then sort of going down your path, I know uh, your father was Lester, I think just passed, which I, I'm sorry for. I know we talked about that before. An amazing yeah, man, you. actually, in the story and history around him. But talk about, you know, Colgate, he went to, your grandfather went to Colgate. If my memory's right, graduated in um, 1921. Your father had this amazing history. He graduated there in 61. You graduated in 83. Your kids have gone to Colgate. So I just want to talk about Colgate for a little bit and, and the family connection with them and what it means to you. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that, Scott. And, you know, particularly when you, you lay it out like that, it takes on a uh, kind of a much 
bigger persona than than maybe it was conceived of as we were going through it. When I was in high school, I was pretty well committed to going anywhere but Colgate because I, I wanted to follow my own path. And then then I realized it was the uh, best of the schools that I had applied to and and been accepted. Um, and I, I haven't looked back since. I've stayed very involved with uh, the Colgate community um, in various uh, volunteer ways and fundraising. Um, and then that, the same point of view was held by each of my three kids. Uh, my son, Jake, who's 26, um, was recruited. He was fortunate enough to be recruited to play lacrosse at a number of places. And he, uh, he chose Colgate for the same reason I did. It was the best academic program that he was accepted into, along with a really top-tier Division One lacrosse program. Um, my daughter, Caroline, who graduated a year and a half ago, ended up writing her college essay about how she had looked at every other school within a four-hour radius of New York City in, a, in an effort to kind of find her own way and came back to determine that Colgate felt more like home than any of the other places. And she didn't look back on it. And then our youngest, Paige, um, she thought long and hard about other places, but to kind of see the strength and kind of family connections and community with it. Um, it's it's been a uh, you know it's been a source of strength and relationships and uh, hope all along the way for all of us. No, I, it, it is interesting. And I um, Caroline's story actually had been interviewed because of her business that she started right with your son Jake and had shared that. And what was interesting for me is with Paige graduating next year is exactly a hundred years after. Your grandfather graduated from Colgate as well, which I'm sure probably might be lost on kids like my kids wouldn't get it. That's kind of a big deal, actually, in in the scheme of things. It's pretty cool. And it was one of the things that my dad, uh, two or three years ago, had pointed out to Paige. Um, and we've actually got a pin with my grandfather's uh, photograph on it from his graduation in 1921. So Paige does plan to wear that on her graduation. I guess you put these ideas out into the universe and, you know, sometimes really good things come back and uh, it doesn't feel like it happened by accident. But like I said, we're very much about community in my family and whether it's the community we live in or the professional community that we're part of, um, the Colgate community has been a real source of strength and guidance and, um, you know, hope for each one of us, my dad, my grandfather, me and my kids as well. So one last thing before I move forward, I the story with your father. Um, Lester, who was part of a fraternity who I think met your mother, Patricia, on a blind date, of which some other fraternity brothers actually went on blind dates and actually got married. This is all back before Hinge and Hitch and yeah. all these other, uh, right? You had to meet people the old-fashioned way. What was the fraternity? And have other family members been involved in that same fraternity? You know, again, it's like one of those things that uh, um, in hindsight feels like it was uh, planned and, and at the time did not happen that way at all, but it was a fraternity that is no longer recognized on campus at Colgate. They had some trouble a bunch of years back, but it was Alpha Tau Omega, otherwise known as ATO. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure that both uh, one of my father's brothers, who also went to Colgate, was was there, and, and my grandfather was a member of it as well. What happened with me is uh, I showed up on campus expecting to play lacrosse, but not being terribly um, excited about the, the coaching that was in place in 1979. And I had always heard about rugby, um, had never seen a game, but I was intrigued by the sport. And I met some of the, captain, the captains and leaders of the team and ended up uh, practicing with the rugby team. And I never looked back and played four years for Colgate, a couple of years in New York City. And, and uh, a lot of the guys on the rugby team were at ATO. So it was just a natural fit. 
So l- l- let's move forward. You graduated. You ended up joining uh, Ernst and Young, I think, in 1983. You were there for about a year, and then you started a really long and very successful um, career after that with with CPRE. Now there was a company called Value Properties in there somewhere that I couldn't figure out where that stood. I know when you, I think about when you got married to your wife Sherry, you were there. But where does Value Properties fit in? That's a great question, Scott. Not many people dig in deep enough to uh, to pick that one out. So I, I worked for about a year and a half for for what was then Arthur Young, now Ernst and Young. Um, got my what turned out to be my MBA um, from NYU. I was actually in the audit group and. I wasn't as good at it as I felt that I could be. And I had some friends who had joined what was then Coldwell Banker is now CBRE. And uh, I made the transition from an auditor to a uh, commercial real estate broker in New York City. So I went from kind of one end of the spectrum to the other. Um, and then over the next five or six years, as as it became uh, established, um, I was recruited to head leasing and, uh, and operations for commercial redevelopment in Rochester, New York, which is where I went to high school. And it was with a group who were um, New York-based, had left a couple of old investment banks um, called Drexel Burnham and, and Oppenheimer, two separate places. And so they invited me to come in and be the uh, to manage the project in Rochester, 200,000-foot uh, historic rehab, and, uh, and then general leasing for the company. Um, and it was the last commercial real estate loan that Citigroup made before the world went into a, you know, Depression and the real estate industry, a five-year recession, and so I, uh, I I stuck with that for almost two years, but then returned to New York and was um, fortunate to have left uh, my bridges intact and in with good relationships at what is now CBRE. So I rejoined CBRE, and since it was so long ago, um, and in in a bit of a kind of a learning experience and a sidetrack, I, I kind of leave that off my resume at this point. But uh, you know, it was a terrific experience, and it it really. Um, at the time, was the opportunity um, for me to confirm that I really loved the development and, and ownership um, part of the business. But it was such that, you know, during that time, I got married, we bought a house, and then we began to start having kids. So um, I, I enjoyed a, a, you know, a, a strong uh, period at CBRE. It's a great firm. I've still got great friends there. But when the opportunity to join Brookfield opened up uh, nearly a decade ago and had an unexpected chance to return to the asset management slash ownership and development uh, part of the real estate business. It was, uh, you know, something that was uh, too good to be true. Yeah. I mean, your run at CBRE was amazing. It's not many people that can come in and start in a way, you kind of started your career. You're a couple of years in, right? And then end up in the position that you did. And then it, it isn't easy to up that would be my sort of statement, right? Because you could have left CBRE and said, what an amazing career you had. And then I think you did when you joined Brookfield and we'll talk more about kind of what you've been up to there. Uh, but you upped it, right? In 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 a way and made a, an amazing career even more amazing, I think, <clears throat> as a result. So l- l- let's talk about, let's get a little bit more current in the scheme of things. I mean, there, we're in an interesting cycle of which a lot of us are trying to understand what that means, right? Right. And um, clearly, there are trends that started before this cycle that are getting amplified. And then there's some other categories that are kind of, you know, a fair amount of, you know, I, I think, still uncertainty on kind of, and, and certainly differing opinions where we come out with office being probably the primary one, right? Yep. So I'd love to get your perspective today on kind of what's happening 
in the real estate market and kind of Brookfield's sort of view of the world today in in navigating kind of the current time? It's a great question, Scott. I think, you know, um, in order to really have perspective on it, it helps to have lived through several cycles before, you know, kind of digging back into history and, you know, the market crash of 87, the, the, the corrections and you know, we talked about before when Sam Zell was saying, stay alive till 95 in the early 90s, you know, the tech bubble burst. Uh, certainly 9-11 was a, you know, because I've lived here and worked here in Manhattan my whole life, um, an enormous um, disruption. Then the, uh, the Great Recession of 2007, 8, 9, um, you know, through to, through to now. Um, what I would say is that there's certainly a lot going on in 2020. There's, there's no disputing that. Um, it, it, I mean, it's not just the pandemic. It's global you know, recession. It's unbelievable um, unrest and violence um, due to inequalities and, say, racism. And I think uh, really disruptive leadership, not just in the United States, but in, in many other countries around the world. I mean, we're seeing it in London with Brexit, uh, you know, with, uh, in France and Australia. There's just been a lot of um, anxiety and uncertainty about the future. So digging into um, the past from experience, it's about two years ago that um, I started being asked to speak or answer questions, sometimes internally, just with some of the younger members of my firm who have never seen a market correction. Um, you know, they may have been working for 10 years, but they hadn't seen one yet, as well as with, with bigger groups um, outside of Brookfield. And, you know, the one thing I would say is that during uh, uh, times like this, there is generally speaking a flight quality and that the um, the path to obsolescence that some organizations or businesses or even people are, you know, the path that they're on during stronger economic times gets accelerated and that, you know, new and emerging either people or businesses or in, in, especially in today's world, technology platforms um, that are really going to make a difference in the world, a positive difference are also accelerating now, um, you know, as uh, they experience a higher level and a much faster rate of adoption. So let's talk about the flight to quality. And I think Brookfield's been at the forefront of and very consistent in its strategy around where it's located, right? Where it makes investments in sort of core urban areas around the Brookfield place concept around, you know, high quality going to your point, mixed use communities. You know, when you look at the allocation of dollars now in general, uh, towards mixed use properties is higher than it ever been in a, in a long way. Of course, Brookville was there first. So do you see any shift in that? And do you sh- see a shift that, you know, I, I think Rick Clark had said something um, actually when I, I was on a panel with him or moderating a panel and he was like, there's certain cities where maybe before we may not have had interest in. And he brought up like Nashville as an example. And he said, you know, maybe in the future, cities like that might be a place that would be of interest to Brookfield. So just is there any kind of shift in kind of that mindset around sort of mixed use and core urban and, and what is that? Yeah, it's a great question and perspective, Scott. Um, just for broader context, one of the North Stars that Brookfield has followed and I think is important for context is that there's literally hundreds of studies that have confirmed this, but there's been an increasing move towards urbanization, densification over the last 50 years that, you know, is really a result of acceleration of people moving to cities that's been going on for centuries. All right. And so just for, for context for the audience in 1950, roughly 26 or 7% of the world's population lived in 
what I'll call central business districts or global gateway cities. Um, it was around 2007 that that grew to about a 50-50 split between urban and non-urban populations. And again, this is globally. And our forecast continues to be that you know, around the year 2050, that might move a couple of years one way or the other, based on what we're going through now, but probably not, that the close to two-thirds or two-thirds of the global population will live in central business districts. And a couple of the reasons supporting that, and there are many, is uh, you know, access to people, to culture, um, to energy. But we're also you know, looking for these global gateway cities that have strong infrastructure, um, particularly around transportation. Um, public transportation and private transportation. And so over the last 20 years, we've grown our global real estate portfolio from three cities, really being in Toronto, New York, and Sao Paulo, to being in about 26, 27 global gateway cities around the world, um, every continent right now except Africa and Antarctica. And uh, we correctly, you know, as you pointed out, we've looked to evolve our portfolio and our holdings in these cities um, so that they're places that, that are really exciting for people to, to be. To, you know, and, and so we look for, as you said, mixed-use communities or campuses. To the greatest extent possible, we love to own and operate as much of the campus or the neighborhood as we can, but um, that's not always the case. But what we look for is a combination of office uh, and high-rise multifamily and retail and hospitality and even now, last mile delivery, so logistics is, uh, is factoring into it, so that we can have a really dynamic 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week, live-work-play ecosystem. And, and that has been one of the characteristics of property that we've been you know, really working hard on, we think we're a pioneer with, over the last 15-plus years, um, and we think is, is what the marketplace, in terms of companies who are looking to recruit, um, retain, and motivate the best employees. Right, it's where, it's where people want to live and shop and play. It makes our property more valuable, and it you know attracts people to these built environments. And you have been at the forefront of it. And I look at you know talking about the allocation of development funds for mixed use has really gone up the last five years. I think in the last three, more on the retail side, it was survival, right? Whether it was malls, kind of B or C level with anchors getting repurposed. But I'm seeing more activity on kind of the open shopping centers and you're seeing people that were on the public entities that were pure in that category that three years ago might had zero multifamily units that now have like three or 4,000. And what's interesting for me, and I want to ask a question at the end of this, is that operating those different asset classes is not easy. Certainly, if you're in multifamily and coming over into commercial, you've got some more commonality, but even then there's nuances. And a lot of people are being forced to go to kind of a you know, use a third party to manage it because they don't have the competencies for it where, right, you know, right. Brookfield does. But there's a there's a concept here I want to get your thoughts. And I, I got to give credit to Tom at Cohen Resnick, actually, conversation I had with her. And, and that conversation was about, you know, we're realizing because we were forced initially in our disaster recovery mode because of COVID to work remotely. And then we figured out, actually, there's value, right? Not pendulum swings, but there's value. And we found ways to be successful. That way, there's ways we can be more successful being physically together. But her her statement, she said, was maybe we're realizing now that, you know, some things can be done more remote and that will open the idea of more things being outsourced to third parties and these more flexible operating models relative to real estate, not just in property management, but in back office activities. Like, I don't know if you've thought about that or heard about that. I mean, I think most of what 
when you guys manage your assets, you're pretty captive in the resources you use to manage your asset base, right? And the way you account for it and report for it. You think that'll change? Um, I think it'll evolve, um, and which I guess implies change as well. I mean, I spent most of my career and, and time with CBRE um, evolving from a traditional commercial real estate broker to leading a big part of CBRE's um, business around outsourcing for, for large global corporate companies. Um, and not just transactions, but also um, facilities management and property management. And my first role with Brookfield was to help with uh, a, a an employee relocation business, which is really way outside of my uh, past experience. But it was an outsourcing function where Brookfield owned a business that helped companies move expats. And we moved 80,000 people around the world as an outside resource. Um, now that I've been here at Brookfield for going on 10 years, I do think that there's um, a strong um, advantage to having core competencies around the ability to perform. I'll say operations in this particular case, um, around design and construction. Um, and so Brookfield characterizes itself, or we characterize ourselves as a global asset manager, um, but we, with a, an extraordinarily strong and, and, and firm commitment to an operating capability. And so while we raise you know, capital um, from a myriad of sources and deploy that capital as our core business. We also have a very, very strong operating platform across all of the asset classes so that we can make sure that we optimize the value and the performance of the assets. Um, having said that, we're also very focused on making sure that we, we leverage the internal resources through third parties. And so what we'll typically do is focus on what we need for steady state um, operations, let's say, or design, development, construction um, on an ongoing basis, and then bring in third parties for construction management or security or cleaning, where there's a much higher level of variability or much more kind of focused tactical service. But, you know, from a core operation standpoint, we do not outsource property management from a leasing perspective. We do not outsource leasing. We leverage our internal leasing capabilities, et cetera. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So let's let's continue down that path. Technology can be an enabler and a disabler, right? Right. And the role that, um, from your standpoint, technology plays in in allowing you to do that, right? Right. And and how you interact and operate internally, but also how you interact um, externally, right, with your customer base or prospective customer base. Can you share your thoughts on that? Yeah, Scott, great question. Um, one, of, one of the responsibilities I have is to identify emerging new ways of doing business that the real estate industry should put in practice itself rather than have a third party come in and kind of do it for us or instead of us or to us. And when I say that, I mean, you know, like Uber um, and Lyft and how they've impacted the taxi business or cab business in places like New York or, um, or, or London or Amazon, you know, with, the, you know, bricks and mortar stores or Airbnb with the hospitality industry, et cetera. So a natural extension of the placemaking strategy um, going back five plus years ago was to begin looking at the evolving flexible workspace arena. And so we spent a lot of time working with, talking with, and, and doing business with companies like WeWork and Industrious. And we made a venture level investment in a company called Convene. Um, and so I had a very high level of, of involvement with those initial undertakings. And so 
we see flexible workspace as something that will continue to grow as a proportion of the overall portfolio and as a part of our mixed-use properties and really as a kind of a further extension or expansion of the placemaking concept, all right? What's evolved from that is technology as a further extension of how we um, engage um, our, our, our tenants, but not tenants from a company standpoint, but the employees of the companies who are our customers. And so the um, demand, you know, our customers is continuing to increase in um, sophistication in terms of how companies are deploying technology throughout their privately leased or their own, you know, owned spaces so that they can improve and optimize the workplace so that they can, frankly, maximize the um, productivity and the revenue generation of their employees. And so we'll just call that, you know, functionality. Brookfield prides ourselves on both building and operating, continuing to improve our buildings so that they are state-of-the-art. Um, technology has been more in the background in terms of, you know, basic building management uh, systems, BMS systems, or accounting, or, or, or really just functionally oriented. And what we're working very hard to do now is evolve that so that the technology infrastructure, our digital infrastructure within our built environment becomes much more of a network so that it improves the ability to be a good partner with our customers. And so that rather than just, you know, as kind of the traditional ownership asset management operations um, business went for real estate, you worried about the base building and collecting the rent. All right. And, and making sure that you lived up to the obligations in the lease. Um, now, what we're equally interested in doing is making sure that the systems that we have to offer, that are technology platforms or you know, digital, um, also improve the functionality of our tenant space, as well as give the tenants and the employees you know, access and information and, and experiences outside of their leased space and in the rest of the building, the rest of the campus. And then the new part that's evolving rapidly, and this year I think is going to be seen as the inflection point of it, is really around the environmental friendliness of these these buildings. And what was you know nice to have five or ten years ago, but probably not a key difference maker in terms of the decisions that tenants made, were around sustainability. Whereas this year and going forward, those are basic table stakes that we need to be mindful of as as good stewards of of our assets. And so an example of this is that there are you know, many of our tenants, maybe many of the global companies, the leader, leadership in the global companies are declaring that they're going to be carbon neutral by the end of this year or by 2030 or somewhere in between. So we're using our investment in digital infrastructure to be able to help the tenants more effectively manage their energy consumption. And this takes collaboration from both the tenant and the landlord. Um, so that we can more effectively regulate our heating and cooling systems, the delivery of, of electricity, and then particularly in markets like New York and others where the electricity is generated from um, fossil fuel sources. Right? To the extent that we can reduce energy consumption, we have two great outcomes. Number one, lower cost. All right? So the tenants who consume 75 to 80% of the energy that's consumed in, in a typical office building, they get to reduce their costs through more proactive and thoughtful management, but we can also convert that decline or decrease in energy consumption into greenhouse gas emission reductions. And so that there's a, um, a dual benefit 
And then the final thing I'll say to it, and we're working very hard on this with um, some of our uh, owner-operator peers, um, as well as uh, you know, a couple of banks and others, is to be able to do a much more effective job, likely using blockchain, to be able to track energy that is sourced from renewable power sources all the way through the, you know, the, the delivery system to each individual building and consumed instead of the fossil fuel electricity. So that in addition to better um, operating efficiency, we'll also be able to convert from fossil fuel generated power to renewable energy source power. That's amazing, actually. Let, let me ask some questions on, I want to go cross asset class because a lot of um, what I've seen actually energy and thought on that has been on the, the office side. And if you go back to engagement on multifamily and residential, it's kind of going through its own transformation. But retail still has kind of been this, you know, wild card in a realm. How do you partner with them to drive and further drive productivity? And you and I know if you go back to the 70s and 80s, 90% of those leases were written as percentage rent, right? Yeah. And base rent was nothing. And then the retailers got more sophisticated and said, oh, you're pretty, but not smart. I'm going to pay you a fixed fee because I'm driving my own traffic. Yep. And now we're kind of coming, my impression is because of the current environment, um, there's a push a little bit more towards partnership and collaboration that will have contractual changes potentially, right? Right. Skewing right. back to percentage rent. How do we partner better on the retail side? Like, what are your thoughts on that front? It, it's a it, strong question. I mean, we Brookfield continues to be bullish about retail, um, as evidenced by our, uh, you know, the acquisition of, GGP and Rouse Company, and and I know you had a an active role there um, at GGP as as uh, chief information officer and technology officer. Another reason that we're so focused on creating this digital infrastructure is because traditionally, um, real estate, retail, and otherwise was hugely fragmented because every building is unique. Um, it was built at a different time using different materials and different locations with different. Even if it's got uh, you know Otis elevators there's different uh, generations of those. And so the unique characteristics, um, it's often referred to as being as unique as a snowflake, um, has, has been an impediment to creating digital you know, connectivity and the ability to aggregate massive amounts of data into a single place. And going back 10 years ago, many of us in the real estate industry, Brookfield included, um, made attempts to create a data warehouse with all the information that was available in the organization and within the assets. And it wasn't much more than a data swamp um, and was, was uh, you know, in, in hindsight, not successful and left a lot of scar tissue. Um, going forward with the practical commercial delivery of some technology platforms uh, that are both affordable and scalable and allow us to aggregate, in addition to creating efficiency within a particular function, like leasing or within security or, um, you know, the other main functions that one needs to do in order to manage a portfolio um, is to aggregate data. And as we're be- beginning to now integrate this and create a truly massive database, um, it opens up immense possibilities. And so speaking specifically about retail, the ability to integrate not just the property data and foot traffic and sales and things like that, but also to be able to just use one example, look at credit card sales within a particular, you know, radius of a store and expect that there is some kind of corollary to that and, and frankly, better organize how our shopping centers and malls are set up in terms of 
different companies being, you know, um, in proximity to one another, um, have destination orders next to ones that, you know, benefit more from um, foot traffic from others, et cetera, is creating you know, an outcome where there is, is a high level of value placed on collaboration. It's interesting, too, because of your Brookfield's collective size and, and you look at real estate, I mean, typical large real estate companies compared to other industries would be considered like mid-sized companies, right? And you look at number of employees and, yep. of course, yep. revenue skewed kind of high. And, you know, I still feel like we're catching up as an industry relative to data and analytics. And as you know, I'm sure someone of your size can make, you know, obviously larger investments than others. And then you look at companies for the first time we've seen in this space, I would argue like Cherry and Reonomy and sort of that category that are trying to play aggregators of, of real estate information, but equally or more important, create these engines that have the means to consume a, a variety of data sets to be able to sort of spin that data. But, and then people would talk about Moneyball. Yep. I always like that, right? Moneyball. But what, what's your view sort of on the state of technology today? I mean, one is around the means to create transparency and the other one's about the means to create unique insights. Like, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? So two years ago, I thought we were um, still warming up before the Moneyball game started. I would say we're in the very early innings now. And so you know, the first step is to create the technology infrastructure that allows us to create a database. So if you, if you, you know, think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, and you got to crawl before you walk, before you run. Well, from our perspective, um, you know, the operational um, expertise we talked about before with regard to placemaking and having core competence in those areas is what I would describe as crawling. The walking is what we're doing now, and that is installing um, technology so that we can provide improved functionality, improved efficiency, and then as a byproduct of those you know, first two things, but having the technology there, we're now beginning to aggregate data at scale so that everything is not being done on a separate Excel spreadsheet or in a Word document or a PowerPoint. Okay, so we're, we're creating and beginning to create data at scale, which is the third part. So, um, you know, we're beginning to be able to run. Walking is creating the plumbing. Running is where we begin to create a database that truly has real live, accurate um, information in it that takes us into what we've nicknamed Moneyball era, but otherwise could be, you know, considered a quant real estate era for the real estate industry, where we'll be able to effectively engage um, you know, tools like uh, software robots and artificial intelligence, but also data scientists and data engineers that today, frankly, because our systems and our infrastructure and our technology is so fragmented, there isn't any real data set for them to work with. But then as we and others like us are able to create these massive databases, then we can begin to use credit card information, information generated by companies like Reonomy and, and others to, you know, so internal proprietary information that gives us a competitive advantage because no one else can have access to that in combination with third-party information that will allow us to do, you know, much more sophisticated econometric forecasting and modeling based on changes in demographics, changes in, um, you know, GDP, um, changes in real estate valuations and shifts in the economy. So I think we're just at the beginning of that stage. Um, and, and we're mindful of the fact that you, you can't go from crawling to walking to running. You can't skip a step. Otherwise, you end up with a data swamp like we did 10 years ago. 
I've not heard the term data swamp. I, I am likely going to reuse that again. I, That's okay. I talk about clouds because people always talk about cloud and technology, and I say clouds rain. So your data swamp's a different version of a raining cloud. But yeah, there funny, you go. Actually. Well, I, I, I need to give Dean Hopkins the uh, credit for I heard it from him yesterday. So Okay. It's I, I'm not fast. Sure, I'm, not, I'm not sure he invented it either, but uh, uh, it certainly fits. I'll ask him the next time, next time I catch up with him. And Jamie Weber, who was one of the founders of uh, BTS, um, originally Hightower, is the one that really coined the quant real estate era um, terminology. A couple of years ago, when he was sitting with several of us from different competing real estate firms, but we were trying to crack the code on this um, strategy that we all felt we needed to develop, um, but it really you know, ended up in those four phases that I talked with you about before, you know, operations, technology infrastructure, um, creating a large database and then getting into the analytics arena. So just want to give credit where credit's due. Yeah, as as we all should actually. So just a few minutes left. I, I have one question for you. So if you go back in time to your 20-year-old self, mm-hmm. what career advice would you give yourself? Yeah, I, I think looking back, um, it was the late 70s, early 80s. And so the path I chose, which was was commercial brokerage, was still a robust business and one that was, um, you know, offered a lot of promise. But over the last uh, 20 years, as communication and technology and globalization has taken effect, many, many businesses that are um, providing kind of an intermediary function, whether it's, you know, traders on Wall Street or real estate brokers or otherwise, the nutrient stream, the ability to earn a living is, is, uh, is shrinking. So I think going forward, um, if I were 20 now, what I would be really looking at um, going forward is what are the areas of growth? And we'll talk about the real estate industry over the next you know, 30, 40 plus years. Um, it's a phenomenal industry. It will continue to be relevant. Um, I think the best place in the business is to focus on um, the principal part of the business, whether you control capital and deploy capital or as an owner, operator, developer. Um, is you have a stronger ability to control your destiny. And as you get into that business, learning how to underwrite transactions and understand the mechanics of creating value of the deal is foundational. And then the other areas where, again, very early innings of how real estate technology is going to be a game changer as it relates to the built world. And so um, taking into consideration or even following a path that involves real estate technology or technology impacting the built world is going to be, I think, a robust career path that's going to offer lots of opportunities around the world. Yeah, I'm amazed. I've been kind of in real estate technology since 89 that I've lasted this long in a space that was an oxymoron, right, for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. It's finally come a time. I've got, I mean, assuming ties ever come back, I've got ties from every era, from the, the, you know, the skinny (laughs) ones to the fat ones. So, you know, maybe that's not a great metaphor anymore. It used to be. No, I think I think it probably is. Well, thank you for the time. I look forward to at some point finding my way in New York and having dinner with you again and drinks, which I hope is sooner than later. Me too. Uh, thank you for the time and insight. Me too, Scott. Um, one thing that I really feel we've learned through this um, is we've all become more practiced and, and capable using you know Zoom and Microsoft Teams and these you know these virtual meeting networks. But it's absolutely no replacement. For physical interaction, um, in terms of the creativity, the ideation, and the collaboration that it drives, so we're big believers that you know the future of 
work is going to include a significant emphasis on workplace and office too. Um, but uh, if you don't get here to New York soon, I will do my best to be in Chicago. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks again, Ken. Thanks for having us.